Highland Shakespeare Festival's Shakespeare Playground presents Tales from the Vomitorium, 38 short stories by Scott Kaiser. At Island Shakespeare Festival, our mission is to provide accessible classical theater realized for a contemporary audience. Tales from the Vomitorium is presented with special permission from Scott Kaiser and is made possible, in part, by support from our sponsors, the Goose Community Grocer, Goosefoot Community Fund, and Whidbey Telecom. Learn more at islandshakespearefest.org. Cora Core by Scott Kaiser. Read by J. Tyler Jones. Do you trust me, old pal? asked Ari. Damn right I do, Paul responded. Okay then, full speed, said Ari, putting up his fists. Here goes. They began their hand-to-hand -hand combat routine at full tempo, just as they'd rehearsed it. Ari and Paul had been best friends for over ten years. They went to acting school together, shared an apartment, had weathered good times and bad. For all intents and purposes, they were as close as brothers. They were rehearsing for a demonstration of unarmed combat techniques in the basement room of a church that they often rented. They were both struggling actors, so to make extra money, they frequently performed demos at high schools, community colleges, theater groups, and retirement homes. The moves were all too familiar to both of them. A step with the left, a punch with the right, a swing, a miss, a kick, a roll, a duck, a jump, a push, a throw. Every move choreographed and rehearsed for maximum safety. But when they got to the first stomach punch, Ari didn't pull the hit. He smashed his fist full speed into Paul's guts. Fuck! shouted Paul, doubled over in pain. Next, as choreographed, Ari smashed Paul on the back with two fists and kicked him in the ribs when he was on the ground. Paul was rolling on the floor, writhing in agony. What the fuck, Ari? yelled Paul. You fucking son of a bitch! So how does it feel, old pal? asked Ari. How does it feel to trust someone completely and have them fuck you over, huh? Pal? Huh? Ari kicked him again, this time in the face. Oh! growled Paul, rolling over and spitting out blood. You maniac! What, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm talking about Emily, you stupid motherfucker. I'm talking about you and Emily. I have no goddamn idea what you're talking about, Paul groaned. Ari kicked him again. Don't lie to me, you lying piece of shit. Emily told me. Paul turned silent. You of all people, said Ari, almost in tears. I go away for two months to do a show and you can't keep your goddamn hands off her? You fucking asshole. It was between us roared Paul. It was none of your damn business. None of my business? You g- 
goddamn prick! Ari kicked him again. You want to be a sleazeball and fuck everything in panties? That's fine with me. Go right ahead. But you knew goddamn well how I felt about Emily, and you fucked her anyway. My best fucking friend. Yeah? Well? Maybe I have feelings for her, too. That's bullshit, and you know it. Maybe it isn't. Maybe I just couldn't bring myself to tell you all this time because I knew- Ah, fuck you. Fuck you, you fucking man-whore. Clearly she doesn't feel the same way about you that you do about her, or she wouldn't have- Shut up. Shut up. Just shut the fuck up. Well, why the hell don't you marry her if that's the way it is? The question pierced Ari's heart like the point of a dagger. That is the way it is, motherfucker. That's exactly how it is, and that's exactly what I intend to do. Ari grabbed his gym bag and headed out to the street, his heart racing, his head pounding, thinking of Emily, thinking of Emily's naked body in Paul's bed, thinking of Paul's hands caressing her perfect skin, Paul's lips on her breasts, Paul's weight on her. He never saw the red Volvo that hit him as he crossed the street. He bled to death on the pavement while waiting for an ambulance. The two people Ari loved and trusted most in the world, Paul and Emily, comforted one another at his funeral. So I had a very uh, visceral reaction to this story the first time I read it. Um, you know, as, as somebody who's done a lot of fights on stage and choreographed a lot of fights, um, the idea of, <laughs> like, you know, you're, when, you're, when you're fighting on stage, when you're doing stage violence, you really are putting your life in the other person's hands. Um, and and there's, there's this trust and there's this understanding that you're you're going to take care of each other uh and the first time i read it and it got to uh the the line um when they got to the first stomach punch ari didn't pull the hit like like something it like my blood ran cold almost um because that's just such a a, a violation of trust um and and then of course you know it, he's doing it intentionally he knows that he's violating that trust and he's doing it because he feels that his own trust has been violated. Uh, but it almost, I don't know, may, maybe, maybe I'm alone in this. Maybe this is just my experience as a, as a stage combat, uh, professional, but like, I feel like what Ari does is so much worse than what Paul did to him. Um, <laughs> because I don't I don't know. It sounds like Emily was consenting. Uh, and so she's not, you know, she's not a possession, uh, she's a human with with feelings and opinions and agency, and so, uh, you know, I I think I don't think that I would want a friend of mine to sleep with somebody that I was in love with. But at the end of the day, I, I feel like you know, there's there there's something like okay, if if that's happening, 
you know, I've got to look at myself and, and my relationship and see what's happening there. You know, I don't, I don't own, I don't possess this person. Um, and when I read about somebody uh, turning on their stage combat partner, I'm like, no, 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 there's no excuse. There's no way. There's no, there's no reason. Um, uh, which is probably the opposite of how a lot of people, a lot of people probably feel like Paul kind of gets what's coming to him. Um, but that's just my perspective on the story. I don't know. Uh, and maybe I'm, I'm revealing a little bit much about uh, myself in that. Um, Two Noble Kinsmen is a play that uh, I've only really, really read um, once uh, in depth. And it kind of surprised me, actually, how much I enjoyed it. Because I feel like it's one of those that people talk about as like, oh, it's one of the sucky ones that it's not really very good. Um, but there's a lot in there that's actually really quite fascinating. The scene where, you know, they're going to fight to the death but they love each other so much and they they're like oh you should have the good armor oh no 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 you you should have the good helmet the you know this helmet would be better oh that sword is is you know better weight like it's just crazy the things that these people have convinced themselves they have to do for love and honor and and whatnot and i i don't know i think that i think that the play's a little bit of an indictment of that of like you know, because this is a this is a theme that Shakespeare returns to again and again. Uh, I mean, look at Falstaff's speech about honor, right? Is it really worth the things that we sacrifice for it? And I don't know. I I think I feel like the answer comes back. No, it's not. And I feel like that's kind of what we see in this story. Uh, you know, Ari feels like Paul has has wronged him, has has offended his honor, and instead of being an adult about it, he lashes out violently, and uh, he ends up facing the consequences of his uh, his lack of maturity, his lack of rationality. So I, I think it's I think it's a really great story that kind of grabs me in my stomach, and uh, I'm yeah I'm, I'm well 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 written. Uh, well done. The Goosefoot Community Fund. Goosefoot works together with the South Whidbey community to create essential solutions. We address community needs, connect neighbors, grow local businesses, and preserve great places. Learn more at goosefoot.org. Thank you so much for listening to Tales from the Vomitorium, 38 Short Stories by Scott Kaiser. This week, we're talking to Scott about Cora Core, which you just heard, read by J. Tyler Jones. Uh, Scott, this story is uh, based on The Two Noble Kinsmen, a kind of controversial play in the in the Shakespeare canon can uh I which as I uh was just telling you before we were recording uh I had to do a little bit of reading up on uh in order to prepare for this conversation um having never seen Two Noble Kinsmen um though I have seen A Knight's Tale so like that counts right um it's as close as you're going to get i think (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, you're right. It's uh, it's adapted from Chaucer's The Knight's Tale. Um, and, uh, n- you know, no one has seen it because it's just so rarely produced. Um, the only time I had the opportunity to work on it was at Oregon Shakespeare Festival in uh, 1994, um, and, uh, that's the last time it was done at OSF, uh, on the outdoor stage, uh, Nagel Jackson was the director of that. And, um, it, it was a very tough slog, uh, working on it. Uh, it's a very, very hard play to, uh, produce. Uh, it's, it's very convoluted. The language is very challenging. Um, you know, so, so much of it is, uh, is John Fletcher, um, that um, you can't always find your way through the through the jungle of language. So uh, there's a reason it isn't uh, produced uh, very often. It, it's just a very, very challenging uh, play for many reasons. Yeah, so th- scholars now say that um, this was a collaboration, as you said, between uh, Fletcher and Shakespeare, written... It would have been the last play Shakespeare worked on before his retirement and then subsequent death in 1616, retirement in 1607, right? Something. There's not a lot of um, information about early productions of it. It wasn't printed in the first folio of 1623, but Fletcher and Shakespeare are both um, accredited on the title page, which was printed I, I now I can't remember 1625 maybe I'll look that up and we'll put in a we'll put in a correction about that one but <laughs> there's information about early performances but not um not a lot of information aside from Shakespeare's name being on the title page um about his involvement with it and we often think of the tempest as Shakespeare's kind of farewell play so it's interesting then to throw this one into the mix of like farewell but here's here's this and i'm just that i just have so many questions like dramaturgically about about that what strikes you as interesting about this play well you know for me it's it's the relationship between the two um the two noble kinsmen that that's what i find most interesting about it but oddly um I think the thing I discovered in working on it was it, it is an oddly um, feminist play when you get right down to it. There's, there's uh, more women in it than I think you might realize, and the women are all um, very much caught in their own position in society. Um, and uh, I think that's one of the things that actually redeems the play is even though it's the two noble kinsmen, um, there are queens that are um, end up on their knees begging for mercy, and there's uh, the queen's sister um, Amelia, who is is trapped uh, in her position in the court. Um, there's a jailer's daughter who is a is a peasant and uneducated, and she's uh, she's trapped in her own ignorance and naivete. Um, the the women in this play are actually uh, uh, very uh, interesting. Um, and I think Nagel Jackson, when he did it in 94, really understood that, that the heart of the play is not the competition between the two men, which is standard, you know, night's fair. But the thing that made it, I think, uh, worth watching was uh, watching the women um, in this culture try to navigate um, their positions in in uh, court life and in um, in uh, in the the cultural situations that they find themselves in. 
Um, so uh, that um, that actually um, is overlooked, I think, by a lot of people who who read the play. The through line is the two noble kinsmen, no question. Um, but uh, the the female characters are actually fascinating. Yeah, definitely. Um, I was reading from Marjorie Garber's book, uh, Shakespeare After All, last night, her essay on Two Noble Kinsmen. Um, and she talks a lot about the um, the same-sex friendships in this play and, um, and throughout Shakespeare's canon, which, of course, you write about in this story. There's the, the two friends who are fighting over... Um, the the woman in in your story but um it's that really interesting perspective of where those lines are blurred between between friendship and a sexual intimacy between same-sex friend pairings in in Shakespeare and when a heterosexual heterosexual love kind of comes into the picture and disrupts those systems of intimacy um and I think that's really prominent in your story as well. Uh, yeah, and I think it is there in Shakespeare's play as well. I mean, these two incredibly um, intimate friends, and as soon as they see um, Amelia through their um, prison uh, cells bars, um, they immediately start to compete for her. And um, you know, the chivalric code means that one or the other has to win her. Um, regardless of what she thinks of either of them, which is very much what the play is about. Um, her opinion is uh, not really uh, important to uh, to anybody. Um, but the two men compete over this woman as a prize, and it destroys their their friendship. Um, but like, as you say, like so many male friendships uh, in, in the canon, um, that uh, you sense that there's there's just so much more there than what we think of as as um, you know modern male friendship. There's a real um, intimacy that uh, in a lot of ways exceeds um, our our own understanding of what uh, male to male friendship is. Um, and you see that throughout the plays. Uh, obviously, um, you see it in Twelfth Night. You see it in Merchant of Venice, um, um, where the, the, this male bond is so strong. Um, and then you add in, um, as you say, you add in a woman into the mix and you start a triangle and those friendships start to, uh, dissolve and, uh, and, um, and trouble ensues. Yes. And with their parallels in female relationships as well with Celia and Rosalind and adding into the mix Orlando and, uh, Helena and Hermia. Uh, and even in this play, um, Hippolyta and Amelia discuss, uh, Amelia's early friendship with Flavina, her friend who who died, and she's expressing that she will never love a man like she loved Flavina, even though they were young children. That intimacy was was everything, and and like that's her soulmate, um, which I just think is really interesting. And as adults looking back on on childhood friends and the intimacy that we share with childhood friends that it's, it's, is hard to find in adult relationships that aren't romantic. Yes, uh, I, I agree. Um, you're right that, um, it's, of course, it's not just male, male, it's a uh, female, female, and, and your examples are, I think are, are apt. Um, but yes, you, you're correct. Uh, um, the, the kind of love, um, the kind of innocent love between, you know, um, you know, young girls and young boys, um, before um, they're acculturated to um, 
to societal pressures is very different from uh, after puberty when you are supposed to behave a certain way. I, I think you you never get back to that. Most of us don't get back to that. You never have friends um, like that again, for the most part, um, where um, uh, the, the same-sex bond is, is so strong and so pure. Definitely. I mean, uh, uh, we replace those, I think, with, with romantic... Uh romantic friendships and romantic partnerships. And I remember as a kid, my parents asking my parents, oh, who's your best friend? And they always said each other. And that irritated me so much. And now as an adult, I'm like, oh, yeah, (laughs) duh, my partner's my best friend. Um, But I think there's, I I find that in Shakespeare so often we're reminded to, um, we're reminded of those, of those uh, intimate friendships that aren't romantic. And in a way, are encouraged to investigate those more deeply. I agree. I agree. Um, and, um, you know, the other feature of, of the play, of course, is, um, you know, once this triangle occurs, that um, the, the objectification of the opposite sex, you know, they, the two men, uh, once they see uh, Amelia, um, they, they objectify her and make her a prize. Um, and they're both willing to die to win that prize. Um, and the play has these odd twists at the end where one wins her and then is, is killed. And then the other is granted her as a prize. And, uh, um, it's, the ending is very twisted and convoluted, but uh, there's no question that Amelia exists as a prize and, um, her, her free will, um, is, is, uh, almost non-existent. Um, and, and that, uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, Shakespeare really understands that objectification uh, uh, very, very clearly. And you see that in Merchant of Venice as well. We're going to set up these caskets, you know, for you to choose, (laughs) (laughs) you know, (laughs) you know, uh, he's really clear about that. Uh, He would, of course, he never used the word objectification. That's our frame for it. But uh, I think we're thinking of it in a very similar way than he was. What inspired uh, the the events in this story? Uh, well, um, I won't name names, but um, <clears throat> obviously when I was a young man, um, uh, it's not uncommon for young men to, to get into um, a sort of competitive triangle over a... Um, over uh, one's heart's desire, and uh, this is a triangle that I I, I did experience and uh, and remember viscerally um, how challenging it is, especially when you have a friend who is also interested in the same woman, and how um, how uncomfortable, how destructive that is. Uh, um, so yes, I mean this 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 does. Um, at some level come from an event in my own life uh, uh, where um, uh, I felt I was in competition for the same young lady's heart. And uh, um, so it was a no-brainer to go from this to to Noble Kinsman, which is uh, about the same thing. (laughs) Yep, pretty direct parallel. Yeah. I think many of us can draw. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's one thing if your uh, if your rival is an enemy, <laughs> someone you hate and don't care for. But when your rival is someone that you uh, you have known and and um, uh, and have uh, respect for and and love for, how really um, how ugly that can get? Yeah, absolutely. 
Is there anything else that strikes you uh, about this play or um, kind of the scholarship of this play? I feel like it's so, there's so much question around it. It's, that strikes me. (laughs) There is. I I think, you know, the fact is a lot of young women um, and young actresses that I know come to it through The Jailer's Daughter. And I think that's worth noting that um, those are the monologues that get pulled out. Um, if you ask a young actress, have you read the whole play? More often than not, they'll say, well, you know, I found this. Nope, nope, they'll say no. <laughs> well, they won't say no. They won't admit it. But the answer is actually no. Well, I do think it's worth um, noting that that is an entry point for a lot of young women in particular, because that's where the monologues are. And I do think that uh, The Jailer's Daughter is, in fact, one of the the best roles in the piece, because there is a genuine arc there from sort of uh, a naive young woman who's been... um, uh, sheltered by her father and uh, comes of age sexually, um, and her naivete leads her into real problems, and those problems lead to real instability and uh, um, and a delusion uh, towards the end. Uh, it's a genuine arc um, for her, and and frankly, a rather challenging arc for an actress to if you have to have to do the whole show. Um, I think in a lot of ways uh, that that role is overlooked. I actually think that that role is very heavily written by Shakespeare uh, himself rather than by Mr. Fletcher. Um, it just it reads too well to be somebody other than Shakespeare. Um, in the same way that when you look at Pericles and you know Pericles is a collaboration, but then you look at the role of Marina and you say, well, Marina is Shakespeare. That's uh, um, uh, Marina must be a Shakespeare uh, creation. It's just well written. Um, and uh, I think the jailer's daughter, uh, um, just off the page, just, uh, is written to a degree that, uh, betokens a Shakespearean creation. Um, so that, that's usually the entree into this play for most people is the jailer's daughter. And I think it's worth saying that out loud. Yeah, I think so too. And, and also making the point in parallel to Pericles, um, with those two female characters and that it is the women and, you know, that's always such a question is, d- does Shakespeare, I, I mean, it's not a question I have, but that is a question I remember others asking, does Shakespeare write strong women? I mean, obviously, yes, very. Um, but that the the f- young kind of ingenue women in both of these, play- well, the jailer's daughters, not the Amelia, but, um, you know, that those are the ones that you can see the strongest case of Shakespeare's hand. I think so. I mean, again, looking at Two Noble Kinsmen, if you, if you look at Arcite and uh, Palamon, they, they really don't have arcs. <laughs> they, they really aren't two, three-dimensional characters. Uh, um, they, they, uh, they're friends. They see this woman. Um, they decide they're going to have it out. Um, they go through many, many obstacles, but um, they don't really grow either of them. They don't particularly learn. The, the ending is tragic for the two of them, but they don't have arcs the way a Rosalind has an arc or, um, or um, you know, a, an Imogen has an arc or they, they simply don't have arcs. Um, so even in this play, which is really done, you can see very clearly that the, the arcs belong to the women, uh, not to the men. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is the case in in many. I mean, even as we were talking about last week with Romeo and Juliet, um, the 
Juliet's arc is is much more of a of a mountain than Romeo's in many ways, and how she kind of deals with their circumstances, um, you know, is is playing her as a young as a young actor. You learn so much about the craft because you go from being a you know twelve year old child through like really autonomy, um, which I just think is so fascinating with with many of Shakespeare's plays. I agree. Uh, when if you're looking for something three dimensional with a with a with a full arc, those you know there are so many uh, great uh, great female roles in the canon, um, which of course is Shakespeare's redemption because mostly, as you well know, um, the plays are heavily male. Um, and when you get into the histories in particular, those female arcs uh, um, are much harder to come by. Um, when you're in the comedies and the romances, that's that's really where those um, those arcs shine. Uh, the tragedies, somewhat, if you're looking at a Cleopatra um, or a Desdemona, they're there as well. Um, but uh, um, uh, that is sort of how Shakespeare redeems himself in terms of uh, female characters. Is uh, those characters uh, often have somewhere to go? Yeah, absolutely. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much for this f- fascinating conversation about this very weird play. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I look forward to talking to you next week. Great. I look forward to it as well. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Vomitorium, 38 short stories by Scott Kaiser. Sound design and composition by Orion Michael Schwamm. This episode was sponsored in part by the Goose Community Grocer, Goosefoot Community Fund, Whidbey Telecom, and by our listeners. Support us and learn more at islandshakespearefest.org.